How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Oh, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> That's one of the best ones. That was incredible, Mark. Mm, there's I a mean, reason for it, but we'll talk about it later. Let's get right into okay. it. Okay. My guess is has to do with a lot of the breath control, but we will work on that no, later. It's some oh. of the people who are here. Ah. Mm. Mm, inspirational. Inspirational. Sophie. That's right. We have we have a, another guest. We're going to be talking about our two guests tonight. But I am just want to let people know I am here in the studio of Science with Sophie. Woo, 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 woo. And I just want to let people know that my daughter Sophie of Science with Sophie is right here as well. So, yep. Hi you, everyone. Hi everyone. But we I want to get right to our guest. So Tom. Can you please introduce our two guests for tonight? Yeah. Tonight, Dr. Joe, we have Dr. Pooja Agarwal and Patrice Bain, authors of Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning. Dr. Agarwal is a cognitive scientist conducting research on how students learn since 2005 and is an assistant professor of psychology at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Dr. Agarwal is also the founder of retrievalpractice.org a source of research-based teaching strategies for more than 15,000 teachers around the world. Patrice Bain is passionate about student success using research-based strategies. As a veteran K-12 teacher, Patrice recently completed more than 25 years teaching social studies at a middle school in Illinois. Patrice is the only teacher author of the Popular Practice Guide, Organizing Instruction and Study to Improve Student Learning, commissioned by the Institute of Education Sciences. Patrice's teaching approaches have been featured on TV, such as PBS's Nova, NPR, Popular Press, and multiple books. Welcome, welcome. Yes, welcome, Thank welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being here. I want to dive right into it. So first, I, I just want to explain a bit why Sophie is here, because Sophie actually heard Dr. Agarwal given a keynote. Can, so that's how they connected. And what, what did you hear? I was really inspired by Dr. Agarwal. She opened the entire conference of South by Southwest EDU this past year. And if a keynote speaker can make me laugh, think, and cry, you know, all in one session, first thing in the morning, that's a pretty good sign. And there are a few in my life that I've experienced, and Dr. Agarwal is one of them. So I immediately was like, Dad, have you heard about Dr. Agarwal? You got to feel better. He's awesome. And then, and then when I found out about the Berkeley College of Music Connection and just the really amazing interdisciplinary work of that, I was even more excited. And, and of course, we have a Boston connection. My sister went to Berkeley College of Music. So I just told my whole family about it. I was very excited. <laughs> extremely, extremely. And so that's part of how I heard about your work. And uh, I'm just so delighted to have you here. So let's let's dive right into it. Um, Dr. Agro, how, how did all this start? And how did you, how did you and Patrice connect with each other. <laughs> oh, well, thanks first for, for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. And I'll just add to Sophie's story, which is I saw a backpack 
someone wearing a backpack for Science with Sophie at South by Southwest EDU and literally tried running down the convention hall to catch up to them. And so when Dr. Joe uh, reached out to me and mentioned that his daughter is Science with Sophie, I immediately knew that that was the Science with Sophie backpack that I was trying to, to run down and find. So it was just really wonderful to hear from you, Dr. Joe, and, and to invite Patrice and I to join you on your podcast. In terms of where it all started, it really started in Patrice's classroom. I was already conducting research on how college students learn, and we had this opportunity in 2006 to conduct research in real classrooms. At that point, a lot of the research on the science of learning had been conducted in laboratories with college students. They come in, we give them a list of words to remember, and then maybe after some time passes, we test their memory. So most of the 100 years of research for my field had been conducted in those kind of contrived laboratory settings. So when my colleagues and I at Washington University in St. Louis received a grant from the Institute of Education Sciences to conduct research in real classrooms and starting with Patrice's sixth grade world history classroom. So it just kind of was a perfect timing and meeting of minds and my colleagues and I, um, the authors of the popular book, Make It Stick, Henry Rodiger, Mark McDaniel, and another colleague, Kathleen McDermott, we sat down with Patrice and the school administrators and talked through what is all this theoretical research, but how can we actually apply it in her classroom? So I'll definitely let her jump in with more of her story, but it all started in 2006 in Patrice's classroom. Patrice, you're on. What was that like for you? Well, it was wonderful because up until that time, I had already been teaching about, oh gosh, 13 or so years. And for the most part, my students did well, but some of my students didn't do well. And I couldn't figure out why. I'm teaching the same. Why do some do well and others not? And there was really no place for me to go to find out that answer. Most research was tucked away in journals and jargon I didn't understand. And so I happened to have this chance meeting with Dr. Mark McDaniel. And it just clicked that here they wanted to do research of how students learn in a classroom. I wanted to learn how and why they learn, and the rest is history. Hmm. What? I no just, pun intended. No pun intended. It was good. <laughs> That's my kid. <laughs> She's well-schooled. Um, so maybe we can now just go into what is it that you're actually looking at? Because when I started to read some of your work, I was most struck by the idea that we spent so much time trying to get information into kids, but really your focus is how we get it out, which seems to make so much more sense. So where did that idea come from? <laughs> Um, well, that starts with, uh, and I love that juxtaposition of getting information into students' heads versus or in addition to getting information out of their heads. So a very basic model of how memory works is that first stage of getting information in. 
So Patrice might have presented students a lesson and activities about ancient Egypt. And the students are absorbing that, they're getting that information in, it's what we call encoding, the encoding stage. Then we hope it sticks around, we call that the storage stage. And then is the key retrieval stage for students to mentally think back, engage in a little bit of a mental struggle and to pull out what they have learned and what they remember. So we do often as teachers, when students are studying, they're focusing on getting that information in, they're reading textbooks, they're engaging in um, taking notes, rereading their notes, but we want to make sure we're pulling information out of our students' heads. So flashcards, for example, that's a very specific activity that is retrieval. We call it retrieval practice. Students are quizzing themselves with flashcards, and that's as simple as, as it gets with getting information out. What research shows is how we can take what we already do really well as teachers, add a little bit more of this retrieval practice, question prompts, writing exercises, and then looking at how that dramatically reduces forgetting and dramatically increases long-term learning. So in one research study we conducted in um, the public middle school that Patrice was at in eighth grade science, we gave students quick clicker quizzes, uh, little quizzes that they would engage in during class. We looked at how well they remembered at the uh, halfway through the school year by December, and then how much they remembered by the end of the school year. And we were able to demonstrate that these quick clicker quizzes raised students' grades from a C level to an A level, mm. just with something quick, simple, that wasn't graded at all. Wow. Um, well, I, I so resonate with a lot of the strategies that you talked about, and that was one of the reasons that your keynote so resonated with me too, as an educator myself, an inquiry-based educator. Um, I, I wonder if there's something well, have you looked into the why of that as far as perhaps the stress level of the exam versus the, the sort of no pressure learning situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the why behind it, why does retrieval practice improve learning is something we definitely need a lot more research about. The general consensus is um, one reason that it helps is what we call consolidation. When we have to think about and pull this information out, we're sort of grasping at straws and consolidating them and bringing them all together to make sense of it. And that's where the retrieval happens. Another example of a simple strategy is what we call a brain dump. Patrice talks a lot in her book, Powerful Teaching, about brain dumps. In the scientific literature, we call them free recall. And it's asking students to just write down everything they can remember. I could ask my college students to write down everything they can remember from our unit on childhood development. And research by my colleagues shows that when students free recall or brain dump, it organizes that information for them. So when we look at what students have written down after a brain dump versus, you know, just write down a few things you remember, but this kind of stream of consciousness, students will organize their thoughts. 
And that's a natural process of this consolidation. It also happens while we're asleep. So a big plug for taking naps and sleeping. If you're listening as parents or your students, sleep improves memory in the exact same way. It consolidates that information. It kind of prunes out what you don't need to know and it helps organize what you do need to know. So sleep is a key process of memory and retrieval really helps with that consolidation. Sophie looks like she's found her notebook. I was just retrieving my notes from <laughs> the keynote that I watched you do because I knew that oh. I had a bunch of questions and things I wrote down. I hope so you retrieve from the keynote and the conference instead of just looking at your notes, right? It's true. It's true. <laughs> One of the learning strategies that's really effective for me personally is writing things down because that process uh, actually helps my brain solidify um, and, and a lot of our brains solidify information. And in the age of digital, um, where we tend not to write with our hands as much, it's something that I always encourage with my students. And I'm curious about your, your thoughts on that because it's something that works for me too personally. Sure, yeah, writing down is great. One of the reasons why it's helpful for learning is that you have to slow down yes. <laughs> in order to write. You can't keep up in pace with a teacher or with what you're listening to. So the writing process is another way to help us organize information on the fly. I do want to debunk a pervasive myth. Sometimes I get asked, is it better to take notes handwritten or to take notes on a laptop or a computer? And current research shows that both are effective one is not necessarily better than the other. There was a study that came out a few years ago that got a whole lot of press. My colleagues uh, have done similar research in the past few years with thousands of college students around the country. And it is true that with typing, we can type a lot faster than we can write. So students do type a lot more. They're almost transcribing what's being said, but those notes tend to be less organized than handwriting notes. So there are pros and cons to both approaches. I fully support writing things down. When I engage my students in retrieval practice, I ask them, for example, write down two things you've learned. And by writing it down, there's this awkward silence in my classroom, but I know that everyone, or I believe everyone is writing something down. They're not just thinking about the next episode of Stranger Things that they wanna watch or the things they need to take care of for the weekend. They write it down and then bonus, they have retrieved their own notes. They're not just writing the words coming out of my mouth, they are retrieving and writing down what's memorable for them. And then they can keep the notes just like you did, Sophie. <laughs> and looking at my notes, there are two quotes that I wrote down that I managed to get verbatim, I think, because they were, they were quite short. Um, and very effective, I thought. And one is just the phrase mental traveling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yep, what, is mental, what is mental traveling? <laughs> um, that's an, I'll, I'll say I, I must have made that up on the fly because it's not a scientific term. Um, but I think of it just like a time machine. And when I'm trying to remember what I did last weekend, which is one of the hardest questions for me to think about, I just tend to forget what I did last weekend. I have to mentally time travel and think back to what I did last weekend to then retrieve it and pull it out. And so that little bit of struggle, like, oh, what did I do earlier this summer? I don't know what happened in June. All right, let me mentally travel and think about it. That's what I mean by the mental travel, the part of retrieval practice. 
We also call it a desirable difficulty. It's a challenge. It's a mental struggle. And that's what's good for learning instead of just kind of passively writing down information or getting information in. And that's the second quote that I wrote down, which I love because it, it speaks to the value of putting in that effort is that you said easy learning is easy forgetting. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly the same thing. If something is easy, cramming is really easy to do. I mean, we tend to do it the night before. Or it's stressful, but it's just getting information into our heads over and over. And that's kind of easy because then all of us have probably had the experience where we cram before an exam, we do well on the exam, and then what happens? It's all gone. <laughs> it's all gone. gone. Right? Yes. And so that's easy learning is to cram it all in, which also makes for easy forgetting. And I, I wanted to mention, if anyone's interested in watching the keynote, it's on YouTube. You can access it at retrievalpractice.org slash SXSW, the, the sort of South by Southwest. So retrievalpractice.org slash South by Southwest. I highly recommend it. We Thank will you. Put, it, put it on our <laughs> Facebook page. Tom, it looks like we've got a couple of things coming in from our Facebook. Can you read the first one? Yeah, we got from Carol. Uh, how do you connect your work to music education, Dr. Ackerwall? <laughs> yeah, hi, Carol. Thank you for asking. One of the coolest connections between my work and music that I wouldn't have thought of until I came to the Berklee College of Music. I'm not a musician, so I get to just teach science and neuroscience to musicians. And it occurred to me, you'd think this would have occurred earlier, but it really came or became clear that what music students are doing is they're constantly engaging in retrieval practice. Mm. They have to listen to someone play guitar and watch someone play guitar, but as musicians, they know, and the same works in the performing arts, theater, dance as well, all of that learning happens when they practice. And so just like my students practice their instruments, we and our students need to practice our knowledge. And that's just such a cool connection for me between all of this research on how we learn, whether it's in Patrice's world history class or my psychology classes, but also for music is just practice, practice, practice. <laughs> So can you read the next uh, Facebook post there? Sure. This one is coming from Becca, who says, I had Alicia Bauer as a professor for a few psychology classes at Berkeley, and I remember doing brain dumps in class. I also love the discussion that happened among my classmates when we went over them afterwards. I mm. love that. Thank you, Becca. I'm such good friends with Alicia Bauer. Dr. Bauer and I share the same office. Um, our semester starts in a week, and so I will get to see her after her travels for the summer. But I'm so excited to have a Berkeley student joining us. And I love that Dr. Bauer is using brain dumps in her class. And it sounds like she would follow up with a class discussion. So I'd be curious, Becca, your perspective on the type of discussion that would happen. One aspect of that post brain dump discussion I really enjoy is that different students write down different things. Different students remember different things. And so with that discussion, it's a fun way of oh, I forgot that part, or, oh, it's so cool that someone else remembered the same thing I did. It's also another form of uh, sort of think-pair-share. If anyone uses that strategy, Sophie's nodding her head. Yeah, if you use that strategy as teachers in the classroom, we give students a prompt, they think about it, they pair up, and then they share and discuss. And so often we skip the think step. 
we ask students, all right, think, now let's jump into pair and share because that's the engaging discussion. And with brain dumps, like Dr. Bauer uses, it gives us a moment to collect our thoughts, to write them down, and to think before the pair and share. So thank you for sharing, Becca. I love that you got to experience brain dumps at the Berkeley College of Music with my friend Alicia Bauer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for writing in, Carol and Becca. Dr. Agra, I know that, that you have to leave soon, so I wanted to just jump ahead a little bit to the application of your retrieval research on dementia and Alzheimer's. Is there a place for this? Yes, there is a lot of research that has been conducted that's continuing to be conducted with older adults and forgetting and dementia and Alzheimer's, which is such an important part of learning and understanding how and why we forget. So um, an example of how retrieval practice improves learning and reduces forgetting in older adults with dementia or Alzheimer's or in general is retrieval practice with what we call prospective memory, remembering to do something in the future that's prospective. And a common um, situation where older adults forget is that they forget to take their medication. With retrieval practice and research on this, when you ask older adults, when do you have to take your medicine? And they say, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. And then later you ask them again, when do you have to take your medicine? They say, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. That retrieval practice helps them remember, oh, it's Wednesday, I need to take my medicine today. And that's, again, a simple switch. We could just tell people or set up reminders on their phones to say Wednesday at 10, Wednesday at 10. But even if older adults with early onset Alzheimer's or dementia pull that information out and quiz themselves a little bit, that's a really big mental travel and a big struggle, especially for older adults with dementia, research demonstrates that just that simple retrieval practice can help with something as important as taking medication every day. Hmm. I, I would really like to dig deeper into the whole neuroscience of that. We're going to say that for another moment. I have the same thought. Right. Absolutely. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, I know, I know they have a couple minutes. So um, the I am approach, you know, because four domains interconnect the home, the social domain, the biological, and the IC, because they interconnect, a small change in any domain can have a big effect. So Dr. Agarwal, given what we're talking about, what small change can you recommend to our listeners, given our topic? A small change. I love small changes. Big changes are really overwhelming for me. It's like if someone tells me to suddenly exercise every day for 30 minutes a day, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that is too much of an uphill lift. So the small changes like, oh, can you take a five minute walk in between Zooms is much easier. So when it comes to improving learning and memory, one of the simplest things is to quiz yourself. Hmm. Let's say, for example, you're trying to remember names. We all meet new people. We're trying to remember their names. What we tend to do, and this is maybe a common myth, is I might meet Sophie for the first time. I wish we had met in person at South by Southwest EDU. And maybe we would have met, had a conversation, and I, in my head, could have been rehearsing Sophie, Sophie, oh, her name is Sophie, while trying to hold that conversation. Mm. A small change that can make such a big difference is to just, I could have quizzed myself after I met Sophie. Right then, as Sophie and I went our different ways through the conference, I could have said, now, what was her name? It was Sophie. 
And we know that that will improve your remembering of names, that will improve what you're remembering in school, that will improve taking your, your uh, remembering of taking your medication. So it's, it's almost a little meta as you have to remind yourself to retrieve, you have to retrieve to retrieve. <laughs> but that small change, if you can build in the habit of just, am I getting information into my head by saying someone's name over and over? Or how can I just quiz myself right after I meet someone? Great. So it's really just trying to quiz yourself when you can or when you remember to. We can do that. Yeah. You're Sophie. Right. Okay. The second truth of the I am, um, you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Agarwal, what kind of influence do you want to be? Oh, gosh, that that question just resonates with me and gives me chills. Um, of course, with our book, Powerful Teaching, my website, retrievalpractice.org, we're so fortunate to be able to share the science of learning with thousands of teachers around the world. And we recognize that we can't control what goes on in their classroom. So it's really important to me to be able to share the science of learning in a way that then teachers, educators do have control to do something about it. And it comes back to the first part of your IM strategy, which is that the small changes are what other people can control or are at least are other people are more likely to implement. So the more that Patrice and I can support those small changes, we can't control other people's classrooms, but we hope that we make that big influence on the way other people teach. Um, another example that I, I think about and I talk about often is that teachers can't control what students do when they go home. And I'm excited for Patrice to be able to share more about her parents' guide to powerful teaching. We can't control, as teachers, we can't control what students do when they leave our classroom, but we can influence them, right? And so if we can talk about the science of learning in our classrooms, if we model brain dumps in our classroom, then a student might feel empowered to go home and then to do a brain dump when they're studying for an exam. So teachers have this immense amount of influence. They can't control what students do outside the classroom, but by making those small changes, then students have the control and can be empowered to do this as well. Fantastic. Dr. Agwell, thank you so much for being on the Dr. Joe Show tonight. We hope that you come back because your small change has had a huge effect on all of us. Thank you. Thank so you so much. Thank and you. Absolutely. Patrice, thank you so much for being here. And, and there's that book and there's another book as well. What the, what's that one? I truly enjoyed working with parents. And uh, as I travel around giving professional development, I so often would have teachers say, I really, I, I like this. I want to do it, but I don't have time to, to help teach parents about this. So I wrote a parent's guide to powerful teaching. My conditions had to be, had to be less than a hundred pages and less than $10. So it's totally accessible. It's, it's sitting down. It's as if you're sitting down having a cup of coffee with me and I'm talking about learning. So how do people get that book? Amazon. <laughs> there we go. 
folks can get it. We'll put it or in. or John Cat Publishing. Okay, is will, another source. We will put it on our website and on our links. So, Thank Patrice, you. tell us, tell us how how are you applying this in the classroom as a teacher? Well, every every first day for years starts with me saying, "I'm your teacher." And I'm going to teach you how to learn because I think that is the most powerful thing that we do. And, and talking about parents, parents also want to know how we learn. We now know so much more than when we were students, but there's, there's a reason why I do that. Usually the beginning of second quarter after the report cards have gone out for the first quarter, every single year, I would have students come up to me and say, Mrs. Bain, I have a B or I have an A in your class. And it's like, yes, I know. (laughs) But then you see them change and they say, but I don't get good grades. Mm -hmm. And you see them go down a little bit more. I usually get D's and F's and then you really see them sink down and they say, I'm not smart. And that is like a dagger to my heart that we can have an educational system where students internalize failure by the time they are 11 years old. And so I would turn to that student with great enthusiasm and say, but look at you now. And what is the only difference? Now you're learning how to learn. To me, it's as if learning has been this giant party that struggling students were never invited to. And you open up learning. It's such a game changer because you see them start to internalize success. We know how to do this. And when we talk about, oh, problems in high school and social emotional learning and and so many difficulties that students have, simply by starting at a young age and teaching them how to learn so they internalize success, changes everything. And so that has pretty much become my life's work. Yeah, it's it's absolutely applause worthy because one of the things that, that I have found is when, when I was running a substance use program, we had so many kids coming in who were on IEPs, head plans. And most of those kids were on ed plans before they started using any drug or alcohol. And my feeling about it was that we were sending a message to these kids that they had less value. Mm-hmm. And that's part. We know that one of the great risk factors for first-time substance use is low self-esteem. Whereas we could have said, you have this cool brain. We have an opportunity to teach to your remarkable, unique brain. That's what we need to do. And that's what it sounds like guys are doing learning about learning yes and it's it it is science but it's also so so accessible 
You know, when we talk about the three steps of learning, encoding, storage, and retrieval, pulling that information out. I spent over 15 years developing strategies on just how to work with students in pulling that information out. When I talk to parents about encoding, storage, retrieval, that kind of sounds like kind of scary and high tech, right? But I explain to parents, you have been encoding since your child was born. Mm. By the time they come to school, beauty, family lore, so much they already know because you have encoded that and have allowed your children to retrieve it so they know it. So what do you think about this from your own your own shows? And- well, I, I realize that be- people who are listening and not watching can't see that I'm cheering <laughs> silently. Like, my hands are up in the air. I'm excited about this because it is so... It, it it's so effective when we when we can understand that our state is dynamic that we can change and the idea that someone is smart is very static that i'm either smart or i'm not smart and that's it end of story and it's so not true and it's so limiting and it's something that a lot of us grew up with And unfortunately, a lot of young people still grow up with now. And so the work that you're doing, Patrice, as an educator to say, this changes all the time. You are constantly changing is so much more empowering and exciting, I think, for every individual that, wait a second, I don't know this right now. I don't know this yet. That doesn't mean I'm never going to. You will. I will. Right. Right. Exactly. That's, that is so much more confidence building. And really that's, I would say like most of the battle, right? It's just Mm -hmm. that confidence in your own ability to achieve and to understand and to learn. Yeah. From the very start, I had signs in the front of my classroom, right center was that it's okay to make mistakes. That's the way we learn. Yeah. And then another one next to it was, um, it's okay to ask for help. No one need do it alone. And so it was, you know, I called on every, well, first of all, I had um, six different classes, about 185 students every day. And uh, I didn't just, I did not call if people had their hands up. I called on everybody because it was a safe place to do so. That if somebody made an error, it's like, oh, we have a desirable difficulty right now. I bet other people are feeling that too, you know? Or um, if somebody doesn't know the answer, they would simply say, somebody help me, and they would get the answer from somebody else, and we move on. That we can do so much in our classrooms that support learning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, and I loved hearing too that you do this with a lot of students and a lot of students at a time, because one of the things I, I, I worked in science museums and I worked with a lot of teachers because I taught third through 12th grade as they came into the museum. So I worked with about 25,000 students and their teachers. And a, this is in, uh, you know, reflected in a lot of the country. This was in Chicago, but it's all over the country is that you've got big classrooms in public schools. And so there are a lot of teachers who might want to do these things, but 
they, there are so many students and they only have a limited time with them and limited resources. So I'm curious about your advice as someone who's been there for those teachers who are already stretched quite thin and um, in classrooms that are really big. I think one of the most important things is that when you use and are familiar with the power tools, which are retrieval, spacing, interleaving, and metacognition, you're able to take so much off your already, already overcrowded plates. Because when you use retrieval throughout a course of study, you don't have to spend a week reviewing before a semester exam. The kids know it. Uh, in my classroom, I quit using the term tests and exams. I called it celebrations. We're having a celebration on Friday because they learned so much. Earlier with Dr. Agarwal, we were talking about brain dumps. And I would give my students a piece of paper in lieu of a normal test and just say, tell me what you know about ancient Egypt. And they would write and write and write, you know, like six pages front and back. Uh, the only problem I would ever hear was, oh, no, the bell rang. <laughs> I could have written so much more. Wow. But I had all students, and that included students who had special needs. All of my students, perhaps an accommodation was needed, but all of my students use these strategies. And I would show these brain dumps to parents um, who whose students had ch special challenges. And almost, I would show them at parent-teacher conferences, and almost every single year, I would see tears start streaming down the cheeks of these parents because it was one of the first times they saw authentic learning from their child's brain straight to paper. It wasn't a multiple choice. It wasn't a guess. It was authentic learning. And that's what we can do for our students. We can, we can help teach them how to compare and contrast. Um, Something that I think too often we overlook as teachers is the power of metacognition. When we have students who study for an hour for a test and they come in, oh, I'm going to ace this test. I studied so hard and they don't do well. It's because students tend to study what they already know versus what they don't. And part of metacognition is for a teacher to have ready tools available to have students make that discrimination between what they know and what they don't so they can focus on what they don't know. And then when it's time for this celebration, they do so well. This would be amazing if this was built into the public school curriculum within the United States of America. How does that happen? Yeah, how yeah. does that happen? Great question. Yeah. Let me let me say something. Uh, UNESCO, if you've heard of UNESCO, yeah. if you've heard of UNICEF or United Nations, UNESCO stands for United Nations Education, Science, and Culture Organization. Mm -hmm. And in 2019, 
I believe it was 2019, they started writing the ISEE assessment. And that stands for International Science and Evidence-Based Education. It is their goal for education around the world by the year 2030. And one of their recommendations, let me uh, have it right here, is um, that science and evidence must be the foundation for education policy. Hmm. That's huge. That's huge. That we, that part of education policy should be evidence-based, that we are using science. I was, there were 300 people invited to work on this uh, assessment, and I was one. I was just humbled that I got to uh, play a role in that. But it, it goes with my passion of, we can change this. We can do this. And, and part of it is talking with parents. Uh, sometimes parents are like, um, oh, my son or my daughter did that in 10 minutes. They did it so fast. It was so easy. But we know if things are too easy, they don't stick. And we know if things are too hard, students will tend to give up and shut down. So we know we need to find this this sweet place where it's not too hard and not too easy. We need to help educate our parents the importance of retrieval. So rather than your child coming home and say, how was your day? We know how the answer to that is. But simply saying, oh, what was the story you learned in history today? Mm. Or, Or something that I think is important for a teacher, just send home a question along with an answer that can be asked at the dinner table or in the car. Because as you help educate parents about retrieval, they start to see this active role that they can play in retrieving. And the information, the feedback I get from parents is they suddenly have these incredible conversations with their children. They actually talk about learning. They actually talk about what their child is learning in school. Um, and, and we can do this. We can change this. So in the business world, you would be referred to as a disruptor, right? <laughs> this is a disruption. You're disrupting the status quo, right? So... What do you say to the folks that are like, nah, teach, no, teachers are used to doing it a certain way and they're going to want to continue to do it that way. You're making this harder. Well, (laughs) a little example that I like to give is um, get out a piece of paper. Don't have a phone or anything, any Apple products, but draw the Apple logo. Hmm. Is there a leaf? Which way does it go? Is it a whole apple? Or is there a bite? What, what side is the bite on? And even though you may have seen an apple logo so many times, you may not be able to do that simple exercise. 
And I say that because as I tell parents and students, just because you see something doesn't mean you know it. You've seen that Apple logo so many times, but it doesn't mean you know it. And often as teachers and as parents, we kind of get trapped into using see it language like, oh, go home and reread your chapter. Look over your notes. See what you highlighted? And so I think not only is it a great way to start educating educators, but also parents Parents, when they see their child study for two hours and not do well, when they see the frustrations that happen when their students, when their children feel failure, and to see, we can change this, and it's easy to do. Too often, encoding storage retrieval, uh, as a teacher, we might get up and say, uh, yesterday, remember, we talked about that's encoding. Switch it to retrieval. What did we talk about yesterday? Mm. Turn and talk to your neighbor. Now let's do a group share. Or as a parent, what did I tell you? You know, just say, you know, reframe it so that they are the ones retrieving. And as that happens and that learning becomes some of times like automatic pilot, we need, to, we need to show that these are effective and you don't have to move mountains. You can make small, small changes in order to, to change the world. Sophie's getting excited. Go on. I'm here again. If, you, if you're listening, imagine my hands <laughs> moving all over the place. So I'm so excited. I'm jumping out of my seat because here's a bonus for those teachers who might think, is this more work? It's less work because when you ask what did we talk about yesterday you don't have to say it all <laughs> you get to watch and be amazed as your students figure it out and so that's that little extra bonus that it actually takes more off of your plate mm, it's exactly. change it's change yeah, it's, people are afraid of change ah uh, and yet, well, you know what but that i think that speaks again to patrice's point that for adults for all of us it is not just for young people, but for everybody, that idea of learning what we don't know rather than learning what we already know is going to lead to so much evolution, so much change, and so much of our own growth that it's it's very applicable to ourselves, you know? And as teachers, we constantly need, need to do that as well. Yeah. So I developed what I call the four steps of metacognition, and I would use them... I, I quit giving flashcards. Instead, I had retrieval cards where students would be able to, um, and, and it's hard to explain. Let me just say, if you go to www.powerfulteaching.org slash resources, you can download templates of all of my strategies, including the four steps to metacognition. But what happens as teachers, when we empower our students to make these judgments of learning if they know it or not. If you go through the four steps of metacognition, what happens is you don't have to grade these because the student is doing that. And the student is able to make the judgment of, I know this, but I don't know that. Mm -hmm. 
And so they will focus on that. And what happens, students are more efficient. They are more effective. They spend less time studying and they their knowledge increases. It is... Fantastic. It's like magic. It's like magic. <laughs> Patrice. But it's science. It's, it's science and it's evidence-based. We, we have a few minutes left. <laughs> we, we spoke about this before. The IM has four domains, home, social, biological, and IC. Small changes can have big effects. Given our topic, what small change, and there are many, what small change do you recommend to our listeners? The small change that I recommend is to be open to the science of learning. Mm -hmm. Simply be open to learning. There is a fabulous world out there just waiting for us. It's it's within our grasp. And to be open to learning is, is one of life's best adventures. And in a few seconds, You control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Patrice Bain, educator, what kind of influence do you want to be? I want students to learn how to learn. And I hope to influence that. And you are. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Tom, Mark, thank you. We'll be back. And Sophie, thank you. For letting me use your studio. Oh, Science with Sophie and a new show coming out. Go ahead, quick, real quick. The Theory of Awesome premieres Saturdays on the People Are Awesome channel. The Theory of Awesome. Check it out, folks. Bye. We'll see you all next week. Go, go.